When women enter menopause, there are a number of things that, while not welcomed, are expected, like hot flashes, insomnia, those few extra pounds. What is generally not expected, and most women don't even associate as being a consequence of menopause, are urinary symptoms like that constant gotta-go feeling or recurrent urinary tract infections. And they sometimes end up in the hands of a urologist who may not be menopause savvy, when in fact, the fix for most menopause bladder problems is often pretty simple. And that's why I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Kelly Casperson, a urologist who's not only more menopause savvy than most urologists, but is more menopause savvy than most gynecologists. Dr. Casperson is a certified menopause practitioner of the North American Menopause Society and the host of the hit podcast, You Are Not Broken. So let's talk. Hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm. What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Obviously, you're a urologist and I'm a gynecologist, which means that I spend a lot of time hanging out in the vagina and you spend a lot of time hanging out in the bladder and the urethra. But it's good that we're finally talking, that we're having this conversation because we're in the same neighborhood. You know, the urethra and the vagina are pretty close together and they have a lot in common. And for starters, both of them are loaded with estrogen receptors, which makes your world my world and my world your world. But before we get to all of that, could you just start by explaining exactly where the urethra is, you know, what, what does it do? Where people really don't know, you know, they just yeah. don't know exactly where it's located. People don't know the, the vulva, the female external genitalia, we don't spend a lot of time looking at it. Right. And so the only time we look at it then is when it hurts or, you know, if something's changing or you feel something different, but we don't really know what normal is because we never looked in the first place. So I see right. a lot of that. Right. Um, so the urethra is basically the tube that the urine exits from the bladder. So if you look at a vulva, you'll have three holes. Top will be urethra, then v- vaginal opening, and then the rectum. So urethra is between the vagina and the clitoris on your anatomic map, north to south, clitoris, urethra, vagina, mm. anus. And and one of the things about it, of course, is, as you say, not always so easy to see, but it gets a little bit easier to see in menopause because there are changes that occur in menopause, quite frankly, changes that aren't particularly good for the most part. But talk a little bit about what happens to the urethra once our estrogen levels are tanking. Yeah. So what a lot of people don't realize is that when estrogen goes to low, which is what happens after we stop having our periods with menopause, the external genitalia changes or what we say atrophies. Nobody likes that word, but hate atrophies. that word. Hey, we Ryan hate that Hulk. word. But so basically we lose our inner labia. The labia minora can resorb or dissolve or go away because it doesn't have the estrogen, which makes it robust. Which is always they, shocking to people. You know, I mean, I know you shocking. know what I do when I bring out the mirror and I'm like, okay, you see your labia, are, you know, they used to go all the way down to here and, and now they're kind of not there anymore. And they're like, oh my God, my labia are disappearing. They're I just- didn't know it. I didn't, I didn't learn that in med school. I didn't no, learn that in not. neurology. I just thought some people were born without labia minora. Until I finally realized it was an Ishwish conference. I finally realized, no, the labia minora goes away. 
when you don't provide it with supplemental estrogen post-menopause. That's right. That's so right. that the urethra gets m- much more exposed to the outer world. It can cause more yeah. irritation, much more prone to urinary tract infections. You don't have that protective layer of skin protecting it from the harsh outside environment. Yeah. But you know, even if not, not every woman loses their labia minora, you know, we, we see a lot of that, of course, but some women that doesn't occur. But even if someone doesn't lose their labia minora, when they separate them with their fingers or we separate them to, to look at the vulva, um, the, the urethra still pokes out more in a menopausal woman than it does in, in, a, in a younger woman. And in fact, we both have the experience of, of we teach medical students and residents, of course, and sometimes we have to teach them how to put a catheter in. And when they're putting a catheter in someone who's 20, it can be a real challenge because the urethra is kind of more inside the vagina. But when they need to put a catheter in someone who's 70 or 80, sometimes it's actually not so difficult because it's, it's poking out. So can you explain why does that happen? Yeah, the urethra gets more pronounced. Again, we lose all those beautiful mucosal folds, all those kind of periurethral healthy tissues go away. The urethra becomes more pronounced. And I always use the analogy of like my mouth and my cheek, right? So it's almost like the cheek will start poking outside the mouth. (laughs) That's called urethral prolapse. And it can start to bleed. It can get irritated. You can get more urinary tract infections. And then we put estrogen on it. And then that outside cheek turns more inward again. Yeah. All right. So now that we know what happens physically, you know, I always kind of like to say, okay, it's one thing to know what we're seeing and what someone might see if they look, but let's talk about what do people experience? What does that do? What do they feel? How, you know, how do all these changes in the urethra manifest during, during menopause? One of the most common ones is urethra or burning with urination or urethral discomfort. So urine is an acid. It has a very low pH. And when those tissues get very unhealthy and thinned and sensitive, you're putting an acid on those tissues. Very commonly, a woman might go to her doctor and say, I've got a UTI. They do a urine culture and they say, Hey, nothing grew out. Yeah. Right. But there, we don't know that things can hurt for other reasons besides a bacterial UTI. Yeah. And I, and I think that's such an important point because a lot of times people, well, they don't go to their doctor. They just call up and say, I'm having burning. And then what happens? They get an antibiotic antibiotic. and another antibiotic and another antibiotic. And then suddenly in their heads, they are having recurrent, recurrent, recurrent urinary tract infections. And then before you know it, they end up in the hands of a urologist who's not as savvy as you are and go down that slippery slope of, oh, now we're going to you know, do a cystoscopy to see why you get so many infections and on and on and on, when in fact, they weren't even having infections in the first place. And yeah, absolutely. Is- we, we, we really go by urine cultures data, right? Um, and yeah. I tell people, I need to know if there's bacteria involved in this conversation or not. Because if but- there is, we'll go down that route. And if there isn't, we're going to really go down the replacing the estrogen route. Except, and this is where it can get complicated in our world, is we know that a lot of women will have bacteria in their urine and they don't actually have what we consider to be a true infection. You know, asymptomatic bacteria is, is the medical word for that. And there's been a move, really not that recently, for many years now, saying that if you do a culture in someone who's having no symptoms and you grow out some bacteria, you don't need to treat those people unless they're pregnant, you know, and some other exceptions like that. So this is where it gets confusing because if you have someone who comes in and they're having all of this burning because of these estrogen changes, and then you do a culture to be complete, we do the same thing. And then it grows out something, you say, aha, 
you know, the burning is because of an infection and then we end up treating it. So sometimes it, it does take more than one visit to figure out what's going on. You know, you treat the infection and they're still burning. And then it's when the light bulb goes off and you say it was never your infection that was causing your problem in the first place. That's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, the good news about estrogen, vaginal estrogen, is it helps both the irritation, what we call dysuria or burning with urination and Mm -hmm. bacterial UTIs. So it's two birds with one stone. So while we're on the topic of bacteria, let's talk about microbiome. You know, this was a word that people never heard before. And now all of a sudden, everyone's talking about microbiome, whether it's their gut microbiome or their you know, mouth microbiome. So talk a little bit about what the biome microbiome has to do with, with all of this and, and with the urethra. Yeah. Well, the most popular or well-known microbiome uh, in the vagina is lactobacillus, right? Yeah. And we lose our lactobacillus when we go into perimenopause and menopause because we lose the estrogen that creates, what is it, the glycogen that it feeds off of or something like that. Exactly, yeah our ecosystem, right? And those bacteria, that microbiome is actually protective against that E. coli and all of that, that anus, poop, gut flora from the back end going up into the bladder. So we actually need our warriors in the vagina to help decrease our risk of urinary tract infection. All right. So while we're on the subject of poop, working its way up to the urethra and going into the vagina, um, I think it's worth talking about, and and we're going to get back to what we're just talking about a second, but let's talk about men for a second. Because women that have all these problems with recurrent urinary tract infections and um, with all these symptoms, the guys don't. And so you want to just kind of fill everybody in on on why women are, are so lucky? We have very short, yeah, we have very short urethras, right, guys? The guys have much longer urethras. Even the smallest penis has a much longer urethra than women. So that road from the rectum where the poop is to, um, you know, to the urethra. And so many times, and you hear this all the time, women say, oh, well, you know, I shower, I bathe, I wipe. I'm sure you do. But talk about why it doesn't matter even when someone is like the queen of hygiene. Yeah. And I think it actually can hurt too, right? Mm -hmm. These women, they're just like, they're, it's almost shame-based. They think they're dirty. That's why they're getting an infection. I'd say nine times out of the 10, that's not what's going on. I actually had a woman, she went camping for like a week. And after that, she stopped getting urinary tract infections because she like stopped showering and stopped using all of her harsh chemicals and soaps. It's like, we, we use things that are abrasive and they have chemicals and we're actually kind of making things worse by like trying to do this like too clean scenario. It's really well. The- now you're making me talk about vulvar washes. One of my favorite topics that makes me crazy is Good. these companies that are, you know, telling women that not only do they have to put perfume on their vulvas so that they smell like an English garden, but that they also have to use these special vulvar washes. So I've given my take on this a million times. I want to hear your take. I just think they're taking your money. We've been around for we've been around for tens of thousands of years without vulvar washes. But I but it's worse. It's more than taking your money. You know, it'd be one thing to take your money if something wasn't harmful. But this is not only taking your money, but doing something that is that is potentially harmful because that's right. You you do get into this. Um, oh, we're going to use these chemicals basically, and I don't care how gentle they say they are. If you can't pronounce it, you shouldn't be putting it on your vulva for the most part. And you know, people are scrubbing away the good stuff, the lactobacilli, and, and face it, the skin's pretty thin to begin with and you don't need to be rubbing it. So let's talk solutions because I always say I'm solution-oriented, as are you. It's one thing to talk about the problem, but let's talk about solutions. And 
Um, so tell us the number one solution to the urethra that is estrogen starved. Oh, just give it, just give it some estrogen. It's some estrogen, little love, give little it, estrogen love. A little bit of estrogen. Not much, little bit. Yeah, I mean, I want, I want your take on this too, because I think going back to the vulvar washes and the estrogen of like women, they say like, I just want to be natural. So they don't use the estrogen, but they buy the vulvar washes. And to me, I'm like, the estrogen is what is actually was natural, what it was used to for all those decades. Yeah. The vulvar washes are. Yeah. Well, so what's natural is for women to have lots and lots of babies and then go through menopause and die. That's what's natural. You know, we were put on earth to reproduce. If you're looking at biologically, what's natural? We do a lot of things that aren't natural. And, you know, we can all, the list is long. And so this idea that natural is good and other things are bad um, is, is simply not true. It's either something yeah. is safe and effective or something is not. The, the word natural, I always, the example I always give is, you know, arsenic is natural. It doesn't mean you want to be eating it all the time. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the natural thing is a buzzword that's great for marketing, but makes no sense at all. I hear it all the time in my women. My women, it's yeah. like, it's like their instinct of like, but is it natural? And I'm like, well, you're wearing or, glasses. Or don't, or, or, well, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, you and I both do a lot of interviews with magazines and they'll call you know, me up and they're interviewing me and they'll say, okay, so what antibiotics should someone take if they have a bladder infection? And I'll say, well, this is, you know, one of the typical antibiotics we start with. Well, what can someone do that's natural? Nothing. <laughs> you know, I mean, this idea that we have to find something natural because natural is somehow safer or better is just simply not the case. So when we talk about estrogen, so we're talking about local vaginal estrogens. Okay. And, and you and I've had this conversation, of course, before that a little bit of estrogen cream on the urethra is like a miracle worker and it only takes a little bit. So can you describe to everyone exactly how they would do that, starting with the fact that you do need a prescription. Just going to mention it is that. a prescription because it yeah. is a hormone in our in the United States of America. It's not yet over the counter, although there, be. I do I do believe there are people who are working on it. They are looking at over the counter in Britain, and yeah. I do believe it's over the counter. I'd have to check me, but Israel, it may be over. There's a, yeah. there's about two countries where it is over the counter. And it should be. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's absolutely it crazy be. that it's not, but it should you know, be. That's absolutely. a whole other discussion. Yep. All right, so, so, when, so when someone being, gets that prescription and they've got their little tube of estrogen, what do they do with it? Well, so how I, everybody's individualized in what their problem is and what they need. But if, if I'm just going to overgeneralize of how to get a great coverage of vaginal estrogen, I tend to go for the creams because the, I can put the cream on the labia minora and the urethra and the clitoris. Whereas if you take a little tab, the vagifem tabs, you just can't cover the external genitalia as well. So that's why I'm mm -hmm. biased towards the creams, but some people think it's messy. So again, it's individualized, but I fill the applicator up to one gram, put it in like a tampon that covers the vagina. And I tell women that's actually bladder medicine. They share a wall. So yeah. how that vaginal estrogen helps the bladder is it calms down urgency, frequency, that overactive bladder, that getting up at night to mm -hmm. pee. We have data that shows that postmenopausal women on estrogen get up less at night to pee. So bladders yeah. love estrogen. Yeah. And, then and, and after I, I think, I think we need to talk about this a little bit more because women don't know this. They do not know that that urgency, that frequency, that gotta go feeling, it's not only because of this, but this is one of the major, major fixable reasons that women have that gotta go feeling. And a lot of times it doesn't happen the same time as the hot flashes. You know, I say it can happen years later, which makes it even less obvious to women. Why would they know their doctors haven't told them? And it may be that they entered menopause 10 years earlier and they're no longer having hot flashes and now they're 65 and they constantly have to pee and they've got that gotta go feeling. And 
Um, and it's because of estrogen starved urethra and all the surrounding tissues. And I cannot tell you, and we have the same experience, how many women come to, to see us and they're having this problem and we have them put a little estrogen cream on and it's a miracle worker. It is a complete miracle worker. So the only thing that I do sometimes a little different than you, because I agree, you put the, and you generously put the cream on the urethra, the labia, you know, don't, get it all in your head about how I have to just use a little bit. You can actually use a lot of it. It's, it's really totally fine. It's not like steroids that we use for other reasons that we tell people be really, really, you know, careful about how much you use. Estrogen, it's like, you know, smear it everywhere. But to get around the messy factor, I do have a lot of women that say, but I love my tablet. I love my ring. And I tell them, okay, use your tablet or your ring for inside. We're treating these areas separately. And it may be that you don't want the stuff glopping out of your vagina and, you know, landing on your shoe or your underwear or whatever. So use your ring or your tablet inside the vagina and then don't use the applicator. Just put the cream on your finger and then put it on your urethra and your labia and all that. And, and also a lot of times I'll have someone who, you know, they're not, they don't care about sex. Sex is not the issue. They're, they're just treating the urgency. So this is my question for you. The advantage of putting estrogen in the vagina, in addition to treating the vagina, is it is going to get to the bladder also, right? Yep. So if you have someone who says, I don't care about sex, I don't have intercourse, I don't, you know, I have a woman partner, it's off the table, you know, that penetrative sex is just not an issue. They're only treating the bladder symptoms. Do you have them just put their estrogen on the urethra or do you still tell them put it inside because you're going to get a better result? Yeah, if I think it's specifically for that overactive bladder, urgency, frequency, nocturia, I want them, to, they need to get enough of it. I find a lot that women will just put too teeny a bit of amount on the urethra. I want it to get into the bladder and that's where that yeah. vaginal bladder wall, it comes in handy. So you tell them to put it inside, even if sex is, is not of mm -hmm. interest to them. So yep. you use the word nocturia. I want to go back to that. Nocturia is, of course, getting up at night to pee. And one of the statistics that shocked me is, you know, you, you're a urologist, but since I'm a menopause expert, I also talk about osteoporosis a lot. And we talk about women that have fractures, serious fractures. And in fact, over the age of 50, and this statistic is terrifying to me, that 25% of women over the age of 50 who fall and get a hip fracture die as a result of that fracture. But what a lot of those fractures come from is at nighttime, yeah. racing to the bathroom. And yeah. I actually once did an article on can your incontinence kill you? I mean, I mean, can your, can your incontinence kill you? And it's, yeah, because if you are three o'clock in the morning, you're racing to the bathroom and you trip and fall and you break your hip. And when the paramedics come, you know, you don't want to tell the paramedics, well, it's because I was about to, you know, pee in my pants. And they just say I tripped and I fell. So aside from all of the other reasons that we should be treating overactive bladders and incontinence, it's also to prevent falls that can yeah. result in fracture. So, you know, it's never one thing alone. One thing can always, you know, morph into something else. All right. So while we're on the topic of estrogen and getting rid of all these symptoms, what about if a woman is taking systemic estrogen for her half lashes? So whether she's using a transdermal product that goes through the skin, a patch, a cream, a spray, whatever, or if she's taking a pill, what's that going to do for the bladder? It may or may not be enough. I always, and again, everybody's individualized in how they process their estrogen and how, how many tissues it covers for them. But I tend to say the pelvis is the last stop on the train, right? It's like the last train station. And so 
hormone replacement therapy is still very low dose hormones, right? We're not yeah. giving somebody her 30 year old hormones back. Sometimes it's just not enough. She'll still have pain with sex and burning with peeing and recurrent UTIs. So I tend to do a vulvar exam in all of my patients. If she looks like she has great estrogen and she has no symptoms, she doesn't need an additional pelvic product. Yeah. But some people do. Yeah. I think, you know, certainly when it comes to vaginal dryness, it's about 25% of women who take systemic estrogen also need a vaginal product to have comfortable intercourse. And I don't know that anyone's ever done this study as far as looking at the bladder symptoms, but it's got to be about the same. So, you know, that's a, that's a significant number. And that's one of the big misconceptions out there is that if you're taking systemic estrogen, that either you don't need vaginal estrogen or you shouldn't do it because there's this idea, it's, oh my God, it's going to be too much estrogen. And right. people get very nervous about that, even though it's it's not too much and it is the right thing to do. I see that come up a lot recently on my Instagram that, oh, my doctor said I don't need to be on vaginal estrogen. And these are women with vaginal yeah. pelvic complaints, right? And I'm like, no, right. about you know 20 to 30% of people do still need to be on a pelvic estrogen. Yeah. I had a patient uh, just this week who um, I took off of her systemic estrogen about a year ago because she developed an early breast cancer. And then she started to have urethral symptoms. So I told her exactly what we've been talking about, you know, take a little estrogen cream and put it on your urethra, the surrounding tissues. And she said, well, I want to talk to my oncologist about it. And I said, sure, I'm, but I'm sure she'll have no problem with it at all. And, and the oncologist basically said to her, well, it's okay, but just do it really, really sparingly. And keeping in mind that I already told her, you know, we're just talking about putting it on the urethra, which is basically a dot. It's the equivalent of taking about half a birth control pill a year at most. And, and so she had it in her head. You know, what that says is saying to her is this is dangerous, you know, that, okay, you can do it, but just do a very little bit. So, you know, I'm sure you run into that same problem with, with breast cancer patients that are either nervous or have been made nervous by their oncologists. So what yeah. do you, what do you do? Do you call the oncologist? Do you tell the patient, you know, that you just disagree and, and hope that she'll listen to you? That's always a challenge. Well, luckily I've been in my town giving vaginal estrogen long enough now. And so the oncologists know, they actually know the data. They know how safe it is. There's actually a couple of papers you can, you know, print out and get yeah. to your, to your oncologist. And the good thing is we're caring more about quality of life in cancer survivorship more than we ever have. Because there the more of them are surviving. I think that's right. the point. Yeah. And they're miserable. Yeah. Right. So getting them to where their quality of life is good is of is part of the holistic cancer treatment plan now. Mm -hmm. And so they say, use it until you don't have symptoms and then, you know, see if you can wean off at some point. They don't I think they just don't want you to take a bath in it. But my oncologists are very comfortable now with low dose vaginal estrogen. So talking about weaning off. And so one of the things when you were describing how you tell your patients to use vaginal estrogen Give the schedule, and I always make the disclaimer when we talk about we don't give medical advice, we give medical information, you know, general medical information, you still need to check with your own doctor. But what do you tell patients in general in terms of how often they should use their vaginal estrogen? And I tell them it's like sunscreen and seatbelts, right? It's just yeah. something we do for part of our healthy life. You know, the average prescription is like twice a week. Some people need more than that. Some yeah. people need less than that. It really is individualized. Yeah. And and I tell my patients the same thing. And, and I tell them that, you know, if they want to go down a little bit, um, if they've been using it every other day or, or twice or three times a week, that if they want to go down, the reason to go down isn't for safety. 
it's for convenience and cost. You know, this stuff mm-hmm. is unfortunately expensive. That's a whole nother thing. Um, and so, but that's the reason to taper down, not because, not because it's safer to taper down. Yeah. It, with your patients who have these uh, urinary symptoms, do you ever also use a vaginal testosterone? Because I think we've talked before, we both use a vaginal testosterone sometimes for extreme dryness because there's testosterone receptors. But I've actually never thought about this because I've never had to, quite frankly. If I have someone who has urinary symptoms and I give them vaginal estrogen, that generally takes care of it. Do you ever mm-hmm. have to add testosterone as well? And are there testosterone receptors in the bladder? I don't even, I've never thought about it. There's definitely estrogen receptors in the bladder. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen a lot of testosterone data on this. Um, yeah, neither have I. It's more like for vulvar discomfort, clitoral atrophy, yeah, decreased yeah. sensation, but not specifically for bladder that I've seen. Yeah, I didn't think so, but I figure you know a lot more about the bladder than I do. So I'm glad that I was right because I really I didn't know the answer to that question. Let's, let's switch gears a little bit. We mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I want to talk about um, women who have recurrent urinary tract infections. And I'm talking about real ones. Not the, oh, I got to go feeling and I think it's a urinary tract infection. I'm talking about the women who have, you know, what is it like 80% of women have at least one urinary tract infection in their life, but then there are the women that get it again and again and again. So could you talk about what what makes something a recurrent urinary tract infection? How yes. often do you have to have it? To, so to the definition to of recurrent UTI is two within six months or three within a year. Bacterial yeah. culture proven, not just right. not just the air quotes of it hurts down there. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, it's pretty frequent. They're super annoying. They're very painful. Um, certainly dehydration, holding your pee. We talk about behavioral modifications that we yeah. can do, right? There, I think there's something to cleaning up your diet, getting rid of bladder irritants. Some people will swear by, you know, I got off the alcohol and it went away. I got off the caffeine. I stopped eating chicken that was given antibiotic, antibiotics in its growth, right? There's it's just, but that's more like wives' tale stuff. People find yeah. out what's useful. So you can't really give that blanket advice to everybody. But some people I've found in my practice have found like ad- adjusting their their diet. It's interesting that you say that because I've always thought that with the diet stuff, which as you say, has not been well proven in the literature, it's mostly anecdotal, um, but that wasn't infection so much, but more of just that um, like interstitial cystitis, which is an inflammation of the bladder that causes that got to go feeling as opposed to a bacteria proven uh, bladder infection. And in fact, I had one memorable patient years ago that finally I just said, just write down a list of everything you're eating. And it turned out that she was addicted to cinnamon candy and had this big jar on her desk and she was eating them all day long and she eliminated the cinnamon candy and her symptoms went away. So I have no doubt that there is something to food in some people, but do you think that's really infection or more just bladder irritation? Again, we don't have great data, but I have seen people, they went gluten-free, they pulled out their refined sugar, they took out their alcohol, and their bacterial infections went away. Whether or not they're just decreasing infection, which made them more susceptible, or decreasing inflammation, which made them more susceptible, I don't know. It's just, you know, you do this for enough years, and and patients start telling you stuff that works. That's, That's true. But the one thing I have seen a study on, you mentioned dehydration. And there was a study that came out, I think, what, a year or two ago? There's probably been more than one study that looked at how much water do you need to drink to decrease the rate of recurrent urinary tract infections? And yeah, do you remember yeah. the exact amount? What is it like a two so, liters yeah, so a there day was, or something? The study I'm thinking of was a couple of years ago. It was 1.5 yeah. liters compared to a, standard of care. And they decreased their re- risk of recurrent UTI by 50%. Yeah. So that's the dilution's the solution to pollution statement that I was Oh, wait, wait. The say. dilution... The solution, solution to the pollution. 
Listen. Okay, I got to remember that one. <laughs> but the, the other thing that, that I think you have to make clear about this whole, you know, you got to drink water is it's too late once you have the symptoms. The whole idea of this is you need to be drinking like this on a regular basis, which of course right. is going to make you go to the bathroom. More preventative and no, not, you don't start at nine o'clock at night. You'll be up all night, yeah. you know, but you're drinking early in the morning. And, and you also mentioned a little bit earlier about holding your pee. Um, is that true that if you hold your pee that you're going to have more chance of developing a recurrent urinary tract infection? Yeah. I mean, our urine has solids in it. It's got waste stuff in it. It's kind of like a Petri dish, right? And the longer we hold on to it, the more opportunity there is for bacteria to reproduce and divide and create a colony in there. So certainly I've, we, you know, we never got taught how many times we should pee a day. Right. And then we built right. these walls and movies and jobs and we're busy. And we've, some people really only pee a two times a day, three times a day. Truck Normal. drivers, teachers. Truck drivers, teachers. No, I mean, there are people, honestly, that it's just hard to get to the bathroom, you know, because yeah. of their work, because of whatever logistics, because they work someplace where, you know, the bathroom is far away and it's just not worth taking the time. Yeah. You know? And I see it in kids too. Some schools just don't let kids pee and then they'll end up with urinary tract infections. So I say, let me be the bully. I get to write the prescription to the teacher to say, this kid needs to pee when they need to pee because holding it is not working well. Well, the other thing, and I know we're generally, I don't talk about kids. I generally stick to the over 40 crowd, but while we're on the topic, some of these women that we're talking to have children and grandchildren. One of the things I thought was really interesting is I was talking to a pediatrician once who told me that she saw a lot of little girls who were like, you know, three years old, who'd just been potty trained. And these skinny, teeny little girls are sitting on the toilet with their knees pressed together so they don't fall into the toilet. And so what would happen is that their urine would actually kind of, instead of coming out freely, it would go back up um, and they would get urinary tract infections. So her solution, which I thought was brilliant, you've probably heard this already, but her solution was she would tell all the little girls to sit on the toilet backwards. Mm-hmm. which they thought was hysterically funny, of course. And, but this would separate their labia and make them more stable. So any moms and grandmas out there, have your granddaughters sit on the toilet backwards. They'll think that this is really hysterically funny. But, Absolutely. So Bob, the other ta- thing, yeah. oh, go ahead, for both kids and for adults, the role of constipation in the mm-hmm. bladder too, right? So constipation does a couple of things. Number one, there's not a lot of room for the bladder. So the bladder might have more frequency urgency. It just can't expand. And then number two, your stool burden. So your fecal bacteria count is higher because old stool is dirtier stool. So the role of I good- I didn't know frequent- that old stool's dirtier stool. There's just more bugs in it. Wow, I guess you're yeah. right. Yeah. So the role of a high fiber diet, lots of hydration, frequent bowel movements to decrease your risk of UTI. Well, not to mention, and because we didn't talk about this when we were talking about all the urgency and everything, because we didn't really get into the whole pelvic floor thing. And and women that have pelvic floor issues that are overactive also will get that urgency and going to the bathroom, you know, urinating a lot. And sometimes this starts from constipation because mm-hmm. people that are constipated and bearing down often will develop a pelvic floor dysfunction, which then can translate down the road to having urinary problems as well. So it's all, it's all connected. So the other thing I want to circle back to, um, when we were talking about, you know, even just with little girls with labia and the urine going back up, there's a term called urinary splaying that we use, um, that, that 
patients maybe haven't heard, women haven't heard about, you know, they think of it as my urine is squirting all over the place. You sit down and you think your stream is going to come straight out. And then suddenly you're cleaning urine off the toilet seat and the walls and every place else. Can you explain why this happens? Why women get urinary splaying? I think sometimes there's a little bit of prolapse, right? So the angle of the urethra into the toilet's off. I think sometimes it's pelvic floor dysfunction. So you've got, you're tight, you're not relaxed or you're, you know, you're, so many people are on their phones going potty these days, right? So we yeah. truly don't have relaxed pelvic floors anymore because we're focused on something, uh, which is fascinating. I haven't seen a lot of data on that. I've seen no um, data, but this would be a great study for us to right? do. So people that are bothered by it, I send them to my pelvic floor physical therapist because they'll really answer analyze biomechanics. How are you sitting? Are you relaxing your pelvic floor? I do an exam to make sure I don't have any clinically significant prolapse. That might be the reason why. Well, the other thing that I sometimes see is women whose labia minora are a little bit on the lengthy side and they're normal, but they're just, you know, on the lengthy side. And what that means is that when the urine comes out, it's kind of ricocheting off their labia and going different directions. And, and of course, that's a super easy fix. All they need to do is when they, they pee is to put their fingers and separate their labia so that you're giving a clear stream, you know, so that the urine can come straight out without, without hitting anything. And, and sometimes, you know, the easiest fixes are the ones that, that we don't think about. So I want to, I want to go back. I don't think we really finished the whole recurrent urinary tract infection story here. So if someone's getting a lot of recurrent ur- ur- urinary tract infections, once you've they've met that definition, um, can you talk about strategies to decrease the number of infections other than the lifestyle strategies that you just mentioned? Yeah, for the majority of women, again, this is perimenopausal, menopausal, yeah. postmenopausal, vaginal estrogen. And there's more and more studies coming out. So I can actually say there's a study that decreases your risk of urinary tract infection by about 60% by just being on vaginal estrogen. So mm-hmm. I can't think of anything else that works quite as well. Even the drinking 1.5 liters decreased it yeah. by 50%, right? So it's yeah. a pretty amazing medication that we can use. So the other thing also that I think we probably underuse is there are a lot of women, particularly much older women or women with arthritis, that just the difficulty of applying the vaginal estrogen or women who are very overweight, the mechanics of it are such that they really can't do it. And it's not the kind of thing that you want to ask your neighbor to help you with necessarily. Um, and, and there's an oral medication which is intended for vaginal dryness, espemaphine. Um, and even though the FDA never really looked at it as being useful for recurrent urinary tract infections, my understanding is that in the clinical trials, um, that, that it did help. And That's I'm wondering good. what your That's experience is. Yeah. Yeah. For that category of women, I go to the vaginal ring because the ring only has to be swapped out every three months. And so we just yeah. do it in my, in my clinic. But if an oral option is available, and then what's coming down the pipeline is the UTI vaccines. I know that's so exciting. I want to I want to get back to that in a second. But the thing about um, asfemafine, which is really interesting, and again, this is the trade name is Asfina, um, and this is an oral medication, a daily oral, oral medication, which is FDA approved for vaginal dryness to you know get that all important lubrication and elasticity to help with painful sex. But what was so interesting is if you look in the clinical trials, and the clinical trials, of course, they follow women out usually up for up to a year to see what's going on. And what they found in in the Asfina clinical trials is in the first few months, there was an increase in UTIs. And then there was a huge decrease in UTIs. And you think, okay, 
Why was there an increase in UTIs? There was an increase in UTIs because women were having sex for the first time in years and years. And which brings me to the next question of um, sex and UTIs. You know, with young women, we know that that's pretty common. You know, that we have a young woman who comes in and every time she has sex, especially with a new partner, she ends up with a bladder infection. We give her an antibiotic and we even sometimes give antibiotics when, you know, prophylactically, every time someone has sex, we might give them an antibiotic. Do you ever use that approach in the peri and postmenopause crowd? Yeah, absolutely. But I always make sure they've got the estrogen on board as well. And even with, you know, younger women, people you wouldn't think of as menopausal, some birth controls in some people cause an atrophy state in the vulva, Mm -hmm. making that skin all the more prone to micro abrasions and tears and, you know, things that could contribute to urinary tract infections. So I always do an exam because I want to see the tissue integrity and how healthy it is, how resilient it is to prevent an infection. Yeah. You know, for pretty much everything you and I talk about, and people always say, well, I have this doctor and they gave me this or that. And and to me, the biggest red flag is if you have a doctor who doesn't examine you. That's the one that you say, hmm, maybe I need to go get another opinion because there's so many things that can cause these problems. And the right approach really does require a very careful examination. And if, and if you go to your doctor and they don't examine you and they just say, here, you know, take this estrogen, because we've been talking about estrogen starved tissue, but there are other conditions that we won't get into today that can also cause similar um symptoms that are actually serious conditions. And um, if you don't examine someone, you're not going to know. So I would encourage anyone listening that if they are having these kind of symptoms, if their own doctor has not done an exam and you are continuing to have problems, get get to someone who's actually going to examine you because that's really important. So let's go back to the vaccine because I, when I first was writing about recurrent urinary tract infections and kind of at the bottom, I said, yeah, and scientists are busy working on a vaccine. But now you're telling me that it's actually close to happening. So tell us tell us about that. It's getting close. A, a paper just came out in America looking at it. So that, I have to think that's even closer because it was actually done in America. But basically, it's helping the body fight some common bacterial strains is my understanding. And I believe it's oral. Yeah. I don't know anything about it um, other than one of the things I was reading is that some bacteria, for lack of a better word, has a tendency to be sticky. Mm-hmm. And and that part of what the vaccine was working on was to make bacteria less sticky so that there would be a better chance that it would get flushed out of the urinary tract. Am I just making that yeah. up or is no, that? You're not making it up. And the other thing about the stickiness is your your ability to get bacteria to stick to the lining of your bladder is genetic, right? So you might you've probably had this where it's like my sister, my mom, my other, my twin, we all get recurrent UTIs, right? They actually think there's a genetic component to the stickiness mm-hmm. of your wall of your bladder wall. Yeah. And and that just fascinated me when I first heard about the genetic factor, because you think, you know, genetics, this is where I got my curly hair from, not where I got my UTIs from. <laughs> Seems so unfair. Yeah. My mother yeah. was, she had a terrible time with all of that. And, uh, and yeah, I've certainly gone through parts of my life where that was an issue for me as well until I started, you know, bucketfuls of estrogen all yeah. the time. I think the, the, you know, the big question that people ask is, is there anything besides antibiotics, right? Besides the vaginal estrogen? Yeah. There was just a study just published looking mm-hmm. at methenamine. Yeah. Basically what methenamine does is it kind of creates almost a formaldehyde product in the bladder, not in the yeah. body, just in the bladder. And it's very repulsive to the common bug of E. coli. So they looked at methenamine, comparing it to antibiotics, and the the result of the study was methenamine is no worse 
I know. I love how they say that. They don't say it's the same. They say it's no worse. And I'm like, really? (laughs) So that might be something that that's a prescription. That might be something that's, you know, might want to be considered. So you don't get the antibiotic side effects or the antibiotic resistance. That's always a possibility when you take antibiotics um, as far as prevention goes. Some people like D-mannose, less studies on D-mannose, but I have some women swear. Again, D-mannose works by making the bacteria not stick to the inside of the bladder. Do you ever recommend that? Because I read that study too, and it caught my eye. Because um, it's something I've actually never recommended to my patients. And have you been even prior to the study coming out? Because anecdotally, there were a lot of reports that this would help. The the demanos or the methamphetamine? The methamphetamine. Yeah, we do methamphetamine. And methamphetamine is pretty well known in the urology world. Mm-hmm. So we're not too scared of it. It's generic. It's not super expensive. So I tend to, I tend to do D-mannos and a high quality cranberry made of the skins and not the juice. There's some data on that. Um, and then the prescription would be methenamine. So when we talk about cranberry, I think you're reading my mind. We are not passing notes back and forth here, but this is, that was truly going to be my next question. Um, so when it comes to cranberry, there's, eating cranberries, there's drinking cranberries, there's using cranberry powder, there's using it once you get symptoms, there's using it all the time to prevent infection. So give us the lowdown on cranberries. Yeah. Well, mixed data, right? There's, you can find it, you can find studies saying it's great. You can find studies that say it's, it's junk. And the reason is these are non-standardized products, right? We're getting into the supplement world that's not regulated by the FDA. And a lot of supplements don't actually have in them what they say they have in them. So it's hard to do a study on kind of non-standardized products. And that's why they've really gone to the, the cranberry that's made of the skins that has the long word, help me out. I cannot even begin to help you out on that when you are on your own, Dr. Kasperson. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something in the skins. It's actually, if anything works, that's what it is. And I like the pills uh, because they're easy to swallow and you're not getting all that sugar like you're going to do with a kind of a juice. We just don't need extra sugar in our our world. No, we do not. So just to be clear, are you having women take this with symptoms or are you having them do it on a regular basis if they have a tendency for recurrent infection? I have them do it prophylactically for prevention. Okay. So we've been talking about things that people can do prophylactically and just to, to review so we don't confuse people. There is the taking the cranberry skin pills um, on a regular basis. There's drinking a ton of water. There is, of course, giving your estrogen starved tissues some estrogen. Um, is there anything else that women should if they have recurrent urinary tract infections? Cause right. I, uh, this is, this is, this is like Casperson anecdote at this point. Yeah. Um, okay. people who like using coconut oil for lubrication, I just say if you're getting recurrent UTIs and you're using a food as a, as a vaginal lubricant, maybe think twice about doing that. Yeah, I mean, you've heard me say, if you use it for making lunch, don't use it for making love. You know, we have better lubricants out there and that would not be the way (laughs) to go. I have not heard you say that and that's fabulous. (laughs) Yeah. Um, When does someone need to see a urologist? Let's say they're going to this excellent menopause specialist who's done everything that we have and they continue to get urinary tract infections. At what point do you see a urologist and what does a urologist do if estrogen is not the problem? Yeah. So recurrent bacterial UTIs or pain that you can't otherwise figure out in the pelvis. Both of those are are legitimate reasons to see your local urologist. In the guidelines, Mm -hmm. cystoscopy, so bladder camera, is not in the initial workup for recurrent UTIs. Really? Yep. Then why are nine gazillion, million, trillion done of them done every year? Because we want to feel like we're doing something. 
That's the nice way of saying, yeah, okay, we'll leave it at um, that. No, no, what I do, so initial workup for your current UTI requires there's no imaging and no cystoscopy recommendations. Now, what I do is I always get a kidney bladder ultrasound because it's non-invasive and it is my job to find kidney stones, to find blockages, to find anything. So I figure if it's my job to find it, even though it's not in the guidelines, I'm going to do it. Now, I will look in the bladder with a camera. If you've tried everything and you're on all the stuff and you're still getting it, I want to look for inflammation in the bladder lining. Mm -hmm. Is there something in there that I need to treat that I can't pick up on an ultrasound? Um, blood in the urine, right? That's another reason to do a cystoscopy. Mm -hmm. So there are legitimate reasons, but just your run-of-the-mill all-American recurrent UTI does not automatically have to have yeah. a camera in the bladder. And I'm going to ask this because every patient asks this. Does it ever mean that there's a cancer? A recurrent UTI? Yeah. Very rarely. Um, yeah. Usually it's more blood in the urine. Yeah. But if you're having blood in the urine and somebody's calling it a UTI, because you can have pain and blood in the urine, mm -hmm. and that could be a cancer, right? right. But, you, but typically it's the blood in the urine is your, is your warning for cancer, yeah. more than a bacterial and cystitis. And, and while we're on the topic of blood in the urine, it's always terrifying to have pee that looks like Kool-Aid, right? And and I think people forget that one drop of blood in a whole toilet looks like a lot of blood. Um, could you give some reassuring words about when someone has a bladder infection and they do see some blood? Yeah. So what, the most common reason for blood in the urine is recurrent UTI, right? Because you have inflammation of the bladder lining. That inflammation comes across as blood in the urine. Yeah. It should clear up. If you don't have any symptoms and you still have blood in the urine, you must get a workup, even if that clears up because bladder cancer will kind of, it'll be showy and then it'll be quiet. That's its behavior. Mm -hmm. So just like if you have blood in your poop, it doesn't mean you have colon cancer, but you got to get a scope. You gotta check same, same with blood in the urine. Yeah. And so the other thing, of course, that turns urine red that people are familiar with is the over-the-counter medication that is given to soothe a bladder infection. Peridium, Azo is the over-the-counter name. Talk about what that does, when women should use that, when they shouldn't use it. What are your thoughts yeah. on, on Peridium? So it's basically like a bladder anesthetic, right? So yeah. it just helps with the, the burning. It's just kind of as a little numbing agent. Um, they just don't want you to be on it long term. There's a rare, rare risk of, I think, liver dysfunction with it. And they also don't want you to mask anything, right? right. So like, yeah, this keeps coming back, but I keep getting an azo and it's fine. They want you to see a doctor. So on the yeah. packaging, it says don't use for greater than two weeks without yeah. consulting with a doctor. Yeah. But I think the most important thing is, is to emphasize what you said is that it's not treating the bladder infection. It's just numbing the bladder infection. So it feels better and you don't want to get fooled because if you have an untreated bacterial infection, of course, the most serious scenario is if it um, continues up and infects the, the kidneys. And so that's, you know, that's the caution is it's okay to use that stuff as long as you're also treating it with an antibiotic, that you don't just do that. And the other caution I always give people when they use that is don't wear the good underwear. <laughs> it's a party it will, trick. It will yeah. stain your underwear. And it actually, that orange color, not only turns your urine you know, bright, bright orange, but it, it turns your vaginal discharge orange. And a lot of people aren't expecting that. So a word of warning that uh, leave the La Perlas at home when you are treating your bladder infection. What am yeah. I missing? What else should we talk about that, that we've missed in our journey down the urethra and up the urethra and all about the urethra? 
You know, I think there's, again, things that we need to study and we haven't studied is this recurrent UTI with sex is very curious to me in my study on how women put things in their vagina without being aroused, how a lot of people don't use lube. And I think there is, to me, I think where we need to research is like, what can be, we be done with sexual intercourse to just keep the tissues like soft and not traumatized just to help not get a UTI afterwards. And I think nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about that. But what you do hear a lot of is, and it's very important that the second you finish having intercourse that you leap out of bed and dash to the bathroom and pee. How important is that, Dr. Casperson? Very not romantic. Um, no. It's mixed data. You know, same with, you know, take a bath, not a shower, uh, cotton underwear, wiping front to back, like all of these kind of, you know, air quotes. Never been proven. Never been, been proven. Not been proven. Just things we tell women to like shame them that they're the problem instead of like right. their, lo- their low estrogen's the problem. Yeah. I mean, obviously women should not have sex with a full bladder because it's uncomfortable, not to mention that you're more likely to pee on your partner. But it's not as if, you know, if you if you don't have a full bladder, there's no reason to leap out of bed from my point of view to go pee because I don't think we have good evidence that it makes a difference. And the front to back, back to front wiping, I, I tell everybody the important part is just not to mix up the two. It doesn't matter which direction you go. You just wipe the rectum separately than wiping the urethra. And, you know, you can pat, you don't get into this. We talked earlier about <laughs> there is such a thing as too much wiping, you know, just, yeah, just, yeah. just pat it dry. And in fact, some women, um, they're better off just using a little water bottle and rinsing and, you know, blow it dry in a warm setting if it's irritating to you. And these are delicate tissues and totally. sometimes people are just too vigorous. The, there's again anecdotal data, but bidets seem to decrease UTI because you're decreasing the trauma of wiping. Yeah, and now another- they've got these great bidets you can just put into your already pre-existing toilet so you're not looking at a big plumbing bill and they're like 200 bucks hello tushy is you know one company this is so good to know because i'm in the middle of a bathroom renovation yay another thing to buy (laughs) or another reason to move to paris which is there you go that i not that i need another reason to move to paris this is always so much fun to talk to you we have to do this again we have to work our way down or up now that we've started with urethra then next time we're going to hang out in the bladder for a little while. Yeah, we'll do bladder and bladder leakage. That's super important. Yeah. <laughs> another topic for another day. Thank you so much, Dr. Kasperson. Thanks and wait, wait, wait. This is important, Dr. Kasperson. Tell us about your podcast, where they can find you, and about your new book coming out. Yeah. So my podcast is called You're Not Broken. It's been around for about two years now. It's on Apple, Spotify, all the big players. And just search for You Are Not Broken. And the book's coming out probably end of June. You Are Not Broken. Stop shooting all over your sex life. I cannot wait for that book. That's very, very exciting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Until next time. Until next time. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Yeah.
sometimes I feel blue She helped me see the light 